So make sure you have your Bible open in the book of Daniel, chapter 11. And if you, this is, a, <laughs> I don't think I'd say I'm nervous. No, that's not, I wouldn't be right. Maybe terrified. <laughs> but um, you really have to have your Bible and have it opened it and be following it along because this chapter, if you just read this chapter through and you'd never read the Bible before, you'd think, what? What is that all about? And I'm going to do my best to help you understand what it's about. And many of you know, because many of you know the book of Daniel uh, pretty well. But um, chapter 10 was an introduction to chapter 11. And chapter 11, verses 1 to 35, describe the major rulers of the Persian Empire. And verses 36 to 45 uh, deal with the Gentile ruler who will rule when Christ comes again. So chapter 11 details 200 years of history. And this chapter caused a man by the name of Porphyry in the third century to attack the book of Daniel because he said that the details were so accurate historically, it could not possibly have been written before the events. Therefore, he said, it's a forgery. In answer to Porphyry, Jerome, in the fourth century, wrote a commentary on the book of Daniel that was considered a standard text for 1,000 years. Uh, Jerome is the one who uh, not wrote or translated the Latin Vulgate, translated the Bible into Latin for the Pope of that time, and it included the Apocrypha, even though Jerome didn't want to do it. He had to because of his position. But he was a sincere Christian. He understood the gospel, and he understood the Bible, and he especially understood the book of Daniel. One author writes this, Daniel 11, 1 to 35 is either the most precise and accurate prophecy of the future, fully demonstrating its divine inspiration, or as Porphyry claimed, it is a dishonest attempt to present history as if prophesied centuries earlier. Someone asked me this past week, actually it was at the wedding that I was at, and we were at one of the dinners uh, after the, uh, the practice, uh, a man sitting a couple away from me, an older man. It was sort of like a riddle. He asked, he looked at me and he says, do you know someone who God would never meet? And I'm looking like people around me are looking at me. Do you know someone that God would never meet? And, and then he smiled and laughed and he says, his equal God will never meet his equal. And it reminds me of Isaiah 44, 7 that reads this way in the New Living Translation. It's God speaking through Isaiah the prophet about himself. He says, who is like me? Let him step forward and prove to you his power. Let him do as I have done since ancient times when I established a people, that's the Jewish people, and explained the people's future the Jewish people's future. So 
here are the contents of the vision we saw in the teachings of chapter 10 to chapter 11, verse 1. This is a, a history of events leading up to Antiochus Epiphanes. Gabriel the angel starts with the time in which Daniel is living. This is the Persian period. And then he goes on to the Greek empire. And we have been prepared for this starting with the statue Nebuchadnezzar dreamed of in chapter 2 and Daniel interpreted. So I always like to do a test to see if you're paying any attention. So there was a statue and it represented all of time from that point on. And the head of the statue was made of what kind of metal? Gold. And gold represented who and what? Well, who though? Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian Empire. Now, all of the, uh, all of the, everything gets worth less than gold from here on. So the next part of it are the shoulders and arms, and they're made of what metal? Silver. Uh, well, it's not a metal, but never mind. Uh, silver. And uh, that represented a two-word of an empire. What is it? The Medo-Persian Empire. And then after that, we have the bronze part of the body of the statue. And that's worth even less than silver or gold. And that represented what? Greece. Greece. And then what came after Greece? Rome. And what represented it? Iron, two legs of iron that ended in feet with ten toes. And the ten toes become important. Next week I'll talk about them more than I will now. And because next week's the last sermon on Daniel. And then there was a rock that was hewn out of a mountain and, with, uh, and it was thrown onto the feet of the statue. And the rock ultimately represents the total of the second coming of Jesus, the kingdom of God being established forever, and the whole cap, the whole of history collapses. In other words, the whole of the statue collapses. So all that we read now will lead us to the wicked persecutor of the Jews in history, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who lived in 175 to 164 BC. One writer says... The detail of this history, as presented, provides one of the most remarkable predictive portions in all of Scripture. So I'm going to start. You, you have your Bibles open at chapter 11, but uh, we're going to put part of chapter 10 on the screen so you can follow along together for a moment. I'm going to go back to chapter 10, verse 12 to 21 in selected Scripture. And so uh, let me read this, and you can follow along. So the angel's talking to Daniel, remember. And then he said, don't be afraid, Daniel, fear not. Since the first day you began to pray for understanding and to humble yourself before your God, your request has been heard in heaven. I have come in answer to your prayer. And I talked about this last time, last week, but Dan, God's delays are not God's denials. He hears our prayers as soon as we Pray them. He doesn't hear our wishes and our mumblings. He hears our prayers uh, when we're really talking to God. And then following, in starting at verse 13, we will, but following, we see spiritual warfare, which we must understand as Christians. There are demons, uh, there are good angels and evil angels, 
and uh, there is a war going on in the heavenlies, and it has a lot to do with our lives, and if we don't know about it, then we get influenced by it without knowing. If we do know about it, we can do something about it, and we can put on the full armor of God, chapter 6 of the birth of Ephesians, of the book of Ephesians, which most of you know by memory. Then verse 13, but for 21 days, the angel says to Daniel, the spirit prince, that's a demon, an evil angel of Satan, a prince of the kingdom of Persia, blocked my way to try to get to the answer to the prayer. Then Michael, he was an archangel, one of the archangels, came to help me, and I left him there with the spirit prince of the demon of Persia. He took over. And 14, verse 14 says, Now I am here, Daniel, to explain what will happen to your people, the Jewish people, in the future. For this vision concerns a time yet to come. So everything the angel is going to say to Daniel is in the future. And then in verse 21 I will tell you what is written in the book of truth. Now, the book of truth is God's plan that's laid out for us in Scripture. If we want to know what life's all about, then we better be reading our Bibles because that'll teach us what life's all about. And so chapter 11, verse 1 then comes, and the angel is saying again, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him, says the angel. So it's talking about that particular kingdom. And verse 2, then, we really get into chapter 11. Now then, Daniel, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will arise in Persia. Remember, Daniel's 90 years old at this time. Three more kings will arise in Persia, and then a fourth king who will be far richer than all the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. That's the bronze kingdom from the statue. So this is future prophecy. Therefore, the next kings would be, actually they were, Cambyses, lived 530 to 522, Pseudo-Smyrtus, 522, Darius the Darius the first Hypostasis, 522 to 486, Smyrnas, I see it says Pseudo-Smyrtus, Smyrtas, uh, Looked like, Pseudo-Smyrnus looked like Smyrnus. <laughs> Smyrnus was known as Pseudo-Smyrnus because he wasn't actually who he said he was. He was an imposter. And then the fourth one was Xerxes, 486 to 465 BC. Now, Xerxes, according to secular history, used his great riches in a period of some four years to gather a tremendous army, counting in the millions, now, some people wonder, could that have been millions in the army? I have an, an actual quote. I didn't use it here, but an actual quote from the Chinese government back in the 1960s that said that they had a two-million-man army. Whether they were exaggerating or not is irrelevant because today I would have no problem believing that they had that kind of an army. It's just so big it's hard to even imagine. But at this time, it was one of the largest armies of all time. And his forces consisted of 1,200 ships. But this giant fleet was totally defeated in battle because there were too many ships and too many people. And they didn't have the media that we have. They didn't have any way of talking to each other. And it was a catastrophe. The exposition which he launched against Greece was disastrous. And he never recovered. 
So actually, Persia never recovered, and eight other kings followed but were of little consequence. Now look at verse 3. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. Now, this is Alexander the Great. We've already talked about him, 336 to 323. He was the mighty king who had great power, doing whatever he pleased. And to quote one of his biographers by the name of Quintus Curtius, quote, he seemed to the nations to do whatever pleased him. He conquered the world, at least the known world at that time. And in verse 4 it says, after he has risen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out toward the four winds of heaven. And it will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. Now, this was a short period of time. Alexander died suddenly. Alexander had no personal discipline outside of his ability to conquer with armies. But he drank too much. He he, he ruined his own life. He, he was an alcoholic. He basically just died a young man in a miserable way. And, uh, and that was very soon after he sort of conquered the world. There was nothing else to conquer. And since he had no, no basis to base his life on except his own self, then he died. The kingdom went to Alexander's four generals, and not to his descendants. He had two sons, Alexander IV and Heracles, and they were both murdered. Now, the next 15 verses picture the conflicts between two divisions of the Greek Empire, the Ptolemaic and the Seleucid. Now, to make it a little easier for us here, uh, Ptolemaic, that's Egypt, Egyptian. The Seleucids, Assyrian. So most of us have enough view of a of a world map, we can sort of see uh, where that is. And um, the time frame is from Alexander the Great, if you want to call him that, the sad great, to Antiochus IV Epiphanes. He's the little horn of chapter 8 with the loud mouth. So verse 5 starts off saying the king of the south, that's Egypt or Ptolemy. Uh, it really is much later. A lot of time has gone by here. Now, here's my fear. <laughs> my fear is that uh, I, this is going to be really boring because it's just going to go for one king after the other. None of these, none of us know these people unless you've studied ancient history. And I'm, I'm a kind of a, a fanatical reader, so I do know quite a bit about most of them, but, but most of us don't. And we can't you know, if I were to, you wonder, how can Daniel remember all this stuff? He's not writing it down. He doesn't have his iPhone out while the angel's speaking. So how does he remember all this? Well, he didn't have anything that destroyed memories like we had today. He didn't have television. He didn't have a to scroll on his iPhone. He, he didn't have video games. He didn't have all these things that just sort of just erase our memories. We've got worse memories now than any time in history. In those days, they could remember many things. But just to give you an example to help you understand this, if I were to tell you for the next, say, 20 minutes, a story that included uh, the countries of the world today that we know well, 
You know, if I were to uh, be talking about, uh, say, uh, what Putin is doing in Russia and give you a little bit of a background of Russia and a couple of the people that came before Stalin and some of these in Russia, and I were to mention that, and then I were to mention the, uh, Italy and France and Germany and Hungary uh, and uh, all of these other countries, and, and sort of somehow come over to the other side and maybe talk about Brazil, talk about America, talk about Mexico, talk about Canada, and uh, tell you about uh, the prime minister now and a little bit about his father, who I knew, I didn't know personally, but I mean, I, he was the, his father was the prime minister when I was uh, living in Canada at a time. If I were to do all that, most of you could remember most of it. But somebody in this day would remember every single word that I said. And then besides that, and some of you are thinking this, God was helping him to remember so he could write it all down. And so I like to think of it, and you know this, like a movie, or even better, this is even better than that. Valerie and I watch these uh, series, seasons. I'm sure nobody else does. Like season one, and it has eight things. Season two, it has seven or eight things. Season three... You know, and then you watch them, and there's so many minutes or an hour or less. And then at the end of each one of them, uh, something incredible happens, and it's 10 o'clock at night. And, and then, well, okay, well, just, just watch the first part of the next one uh, just to see what happened. And then it comes up on the screen. This just happened recently. And then the next one come up, and it says, three months earlier. I mean, we're waiting to see what happened. And now it's, you're going back three months? That could take like 10 minutes. I want to go to bed. <laughs> but that's, well, I went through this and I thought, this, is, this would make some, a great series. So verse 5, the king of the south, that's the king of Egypt, Ptolemy I, an effective general under Alexander, then his then his son, Ptolemy II Philadelphus, I won't use their dates, they don't mean anything to us, will become strong, the angel says to Daniel, but one of his commanders, it was Seleucius I Nicator, king of Syria, another Alexander general, will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power and his kingdom included Babylon, Syria, and Media, the largest of all the divisions of the Greek Empire, verse 6. After some years, they will become allies, and the daughter of the king of the south, Egypt, will go to the king of the north, Syria, to make an alliance, a political marriage. This was very common. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last, and in those days she will be betrayed together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. Can you just imagine that as, you know, as first series, the first of the season? So one, chapter one, the first one, there he is. And here's what, here's what happened historically. This is amazing. Ptolemy gave his daughter Bernice, that's Berenice, in marriage to Antiochus II Theos, and Antiochus divorced his wife. This was all arranged to do this. Laodice, Laodice, so he could marry Berenice. So this is what's happening. 
And so you just imagine watching this, and you can see the wife's going to Laodicea, goes away. She's moved to another place to get out of the way. And, uh, and then uh, you end season two. It was the second one. Now we're going to season three. We're staying up a little later. Within a few years, Ptolemy died. Oh, wow. And Antiochus, who was married to Berenice, remarried Laodicea, his former wife. Whoa, this is exciting. Then Laodicea then murdered Antiochus. She poisoned him. And Berenice, she poisoned Berenice and many others. And now, I mean, now I know you have to take my word for all of this, but I can assure you that if you took the time to read the history books, you could look all this up. And the point is that what we are reading was written long before any of these events happened. In other words, here's what's important about this for us right now. There is a plan. Life is not random. I had a good conversation with someone just before the service about this, and that really comforts me. It's not random. You're thinking, but this terrible thing happened to me. It may be ter- you may think it was terrible, but there's a plan. And, and if you understand that and you know the person in charge of the plan personally, you have got it made. Now, someone once said that all history is his story, and I agree, but even more than that, we must realize what God inspired is important for us to work hard at understanding. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 in the New Testament reads, all Scripture is inspired by God. And that's talking initially about the Old Testament, like Daniel, and is useful to teach us what is true, and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives, and it corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. So we finished watching all everybody getting poisoned and everything, and now we're uh, season three, number six, verse seven. One from her family line will arise to take her place, and he will attack the forces of the king of the north, Syria, and enter his fortress, and he'll fight against them and be victorious. And he'll also seize their gods, their metal images uh, that they're worshiping, and their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt, so he's becoming rich. For some years, he will leave the king of the north, the king of Syria, alone. So we're talking about Ptolemy III, Eurgetes, Bernice's brother, who attacked Syria and prevailed, and then there was a period of peace. And now we're series three, number nine. Then the king of the north, Syria, will invade the realm of the king of the south, Egypt, but will retreat to his own country. And his sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. So here's what happens. Seleucius II died in 226, and Seleucius III, Serranus, and Antiochus III continued the wars with with the Ptolemies. Seleucius II was murdered, and his brother Antioch II came to power. And he attacked even into Phoenicia and Palestine, 
well, Israel is better to say, as far as the king of the south's fortress. Look at verse 11 now, and you'll, we'll bring that together a little bit. Then the king of the south, Egypt, will march out in a rage, he's so upset at all this, and fight against the king of the north, Syria, who will raise a large army, but it'll be defeated. And now we're in season four, and this just, just happened. And then the king of the south, this is what happened, Ptolemy the four Philopater, or Philopater, I can't, was in a, ra in a rage. This is what actually happened. He was in a rage at Antiochus' success, so he went after Antiochus. Though Ptolemy had a smaller army, he defeated Antiochus near a place called Raphia and won the battle. And he could have conquered the Syrian realm, but he, this is a strange statement, but uh, it's an historical statement. He, he chose the fun at the court rather than the battle on the field. You see, he, he gave himself the credit for what he did. And since now, all of a sudden, he's, he's kind of rich and he's got all kinds of, every, he's got all this power. And so he's just living for himself. Now, I mentioned Jerome in the beginning for the fourth century. He wrote a, he, in, in Jerome's commentary, he writes about this in amazing detail. And rather than bore you with long quotes, if you cared to, Jerome's commentary is readily available. And it was the commentary for a thousand years. And it really is something to read. Now, the result of all this was, verse 12 now, when the army is carried off, the king of the south, Egypt, will be filled with pride and will slaughter many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army larger than the first, and after several years, he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. Now, according to the historian Polybius, Ptolemy IV Philopater won a great victory over the Syrians. Quote, both armies were quite large. Ptolemy's forces consisted of 70,000 infantry, 5,000 cavalry, and 73 elephants. That were the tank, they were the tanks of the day. Antiochus's army had 62,000 infantry, 6,000 cavalry, and 102 elephants. But pride welled up, and many were slaughtered. Fifteen years later, Antiochus II returned with a huge army. Ptolemy had just died, and his son had taken over. Ptolemy V, Epiphanes, Antiochus III prevailed. Now, in those times, verse 14, many will rise against Egypt, the king of the south. The violent men among your own people will rebel in fulfillment of the vision, but without success. And then the king of the north, that's Syria, will come and build up siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. The forces of the south, Egypt, will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. So this refers to the unsuccessful attempt by three Egyptian leaders, Europus, Menecles, and Demodenes. I think that's how you say it. I when I first tried to pronounce it, I thought Dennis the Menace. <laughs> and so Europus, Menaclus, and Dennis the Menace to rescue the besieged Scopus. Verse 16, the invader, 
Antiochus will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will establish himself in the beautiful land, that's Israel, and will have the power to destroy it. What this means is he has the power to destroy it. It means that it's prosperous, but he's fully in control. He can do whatever he wants with it, but it's prospering. And uh, in 201 BC, Antiochus of Syria gathered a great army, and with the help of many Jews who should not have helped him, because Ptolemy had been good to them, Antiochus attacked Egypt with some success and defeated the Egyptian Scopus at Sidon, which was referred to as the most fenced cities, or more literally as a city of fortification, like it says in verse uh, 15. And then in verse 17 it says, he will determine to come with the might of his entire kingdom and will make an alliance with the king of the south, Egypt. And he will give him a daughter, now here's some intrigue, in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom. In other words, he's giving him his daughter so that he, she's going to become like a spy. And the reason he's doing that, he's arranged it all in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. So Andy, here's what happened. Antiochus made a diplomatic agreement with Egypt. Now, sort of, you'll at least recognize the name here. By marrying his daughter, Cleopatra, to Ptolemy V Epiphanes in 192 BC. It didn't work. Because Cleopatra sided with her husband against her dad, and, and it failed. And now verse 18, then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back upon him. Antiochus tried to equal the conquest of Alexander the Great by attacking Greece. He was unsuccessful and was killed in the most... He was killed by an angry mob in his own country who were upset at him for desecrating and stealing from one of his own pagan temples in 187 BC. So they rioted and killed him. And then verse 19, after this, he will turn back toward the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. And so Seleucius IV, Philopater, succeeded Antiochus, um, I mean, this is amazing. The, the accuracy of these prophecies are incredible and should encourage us to believe in the, the divine inspiration of the book of Daniel and all the other scriptures. Even though I'm, I mean, I could, speak, I could just take three or four verses every night for a month and not cover everything here. Uh, it's so amazing to see this and to understand it. I knew of a professor in Dallas Seminary whose son turned from the Lord. And, and uh, so the professor, uh, sort of the, the, the last hope was he took his son and he said, will you just study one chapter of the book of Daniel with me before you decide to just throw it all away? Only they didn't do the kind of study I'm doing. This professor knew his stuff and he knew every detail. He knew all the historical details. And when it was over, his son had to say, Wow. Not only is there a God, but since there's no doubt about it at all, and he knows the future, I need to pay a lot more attention to him. 
So verse 20, his successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. Everybody should pay their fair share, shouldn't they? You didn't get it. In a few years, however, the ta- he will be destroyed, not the tax collector. You know, they never get destroyed. <laughs> Yet not in anger or in battle. So Seleucius IV, Philopater, was forced to pay so much in taxes to Rome, Rome has come onto the picture here now, that he heavily taxed all the lands under his domain. And he used a tax collector, this Heliodorus, who took treasures from the temple in Jerusalem, made himself rich. That's unusual for a government employee. And Seleucius was suddenly removed by some poison administered by the tax collector Heliodorus. So you better pay your taxes. Verse 21. He will, he will be succeeded, the angel says to Daniel, by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. In other words, the people didn't honor him and make him king. Uh, he made himself all that. And he'll invade the kingdom when his people feel secure. And he will seize it through intrigue. The best translation might be this. And he will seize it through sweet words or slick practices. So to call this man contemptible is an understatement. His name, Antiochus Epiphanes. Verses 21 to 35, describe him. He is the little horn that we met in Daniel chapter 8 with the big mouth, and he ruled from 175 to 164 B.C. And he is often called in the Old Testament, the Old Testament Antichrist. He's a mere picture of the Antichrist who will come at the end before Jesus returns. He is best known for the desecration of the temple uh, and the Jewish altar and for his terrible persecution of the Jews. Uh, look at verse 22. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. The prince of the covenant's a, a priest. He then proceeded with military conquests for power against Roman Egypt. He did. He defeated Egypt, and there was much war and intrigue, and he killed the high priest Onias, who was known as the prince of the covenant. Now look at verse 23. After coming to an agreement with him, he will, actually, he will act deceitfully, and with only a few people, he'll rise to power. It was part of Antiochus's ways to make agreements with his enemies and then at the right time break them. Antiochus came to Antioch pretending to be the guardian of another younger Antiochus who should have taken the throne. He was the one in, that should have been on the throne. The un- younger Antiochus was murdered by Andronicus, and then Andronicus IV Epiphanes killed him. Antiochus IV Epiphanes killed him. And, and it's pretty clear he plotted the whole thing. And then verse 24, when the richest provinces feel secure, he, Antiochus, will invade them, verse 24, and will achieve what neither his fathers nor his forefather did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers, making them all rich. And he'll plot the overthrow of fortresses. Now look at what it says, but only for a time. And, and I wrote in my notes right away, a time decreed by God. 
Remember, this is being written a couple of hundred years before it happened. And it happened exactly that way. And it wasn't because Antiochus read the book of Daniel, oh, I better do this, and Berenice said I better get some poison and all of this kind of stuff. Antiochus was one of the worst tyrants to ever persecute the Jewish people. He massacred thousands of Jews. He was called a contemptible person. He was nicknamed the madman, and his name Epiphanes means the manifest one or the illustrious one. He gave himself these names and wanted to be known as God, small g. The next two verses expand on verse 22. So just for a moment, we'll go back to verse 22, which reads, Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him, both it and the prince of the covenant, that's Onias, the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Now, verse 25, With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the king of the south, Egypt, the king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. And those who eat from the king's provisions will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The Egyptian army was full of disloyal men. Now, verse 27, the two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other. Two politicians lying to each other? That's unusual, but to no avail because an end will still come at the appointed time. There we have it again, over and over again. The king of the north, Antiochus, will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, meaning against God, against Israel, against the Jews. He'll take action against it and then return to his own country. So when Antiochus returned, he found a rebellion going on, and he put it down by massacring 80,000 men, women, and children, and then looted the temple with the help of the evil high priest, Menelaus. Here's the picture. Antiochus had been approached by a younger member of the high priestly family named Jason. I mean, this alone, this is a good, like a, a, a murder mystery all by itself. What a book this is. Antiochus had been approached by a younger member of the high priestly family named Jason. Jason promised Antiochus that if the legitimate high priest Onias was removed, he, that is Jason, would pay the king a large bribe. Antiochus removed Onias for the bribe. So now Jason was the high priest. But Menelaus, Jason's brother, offered Antiochus another bribe, larger than Jason's. Well, that was no problem for Antiochus. So in 172 BC, Menelaus sold golden utensils from the temple and took some of the temple offerings to pay the bribe. Now, Onias comes back on the scene, and he was so upset at what Menelaus had done that he protested, and many lost had Onias killed. <laughs> I mean, this is amazing. Now, the people enter the scene. They're so angry that they go to Antiochus and accuse many lost and another brother, Lysimachus, of the murder. So Antiochus executed Dronicus, are you keeping up with this, who have been sent by many lost to murder Onias. But Antiochus also killed the representative of the people who had approached the king. 
So now back to Jason. Remember him? Antiochus decided to settle a score with Jason, who had taken Jerusalem in an effort to overthrow Menelaus. Jason had been told falsely, oh, would this be a great movie, that Antiochus had been killed in battle in Egypt. Jason had a regiment of a 1,000 armed supporters. He had massacred a large number of citizens and jailed many lost in the Jerusalem citadel. This is when Antiochus marched into the city, released many lost, and killed 80,000 men, women, and children. He then profaned the temple and robbed it of its golden vessels and other sacred objects of great value. And this happened, we know exactly when this happened, on the 16th of the month of December in 168. Three years later, Judas Maccabeus rededicated the temple to the worship of Yahweh. Now, in the Apocrypha, the extra extra books you find in the original King James Bible or uh, in today's Catholic Bible, uh, they're very good books to read, but they're clearly not... Uh, not good scripture, except for First and Second Maccabees, because it's about this Maccabean people and the Maccabeus himself. He was an they called him the Hammer, and he was Jewish. And so it says three days later, Judas Maccabeus rededicated the temple to the worship of Yahweh. That's one sentence, but it's a whole battle, and he won it. And even with all the human scheming here. This, this is what I'm saying. Even with all the human scheming, God still is working out his plan exactly on time. And in verse 29, look at verse 29. At the appointed time, that's God's sovereignty. He'll invade the south again. That's Egypt. But this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Verse 30, ships of the western coastlands will oppose him and he'll lose heart. This is really something to think about. I I like to kind of put it this way. God is in charge. You have nothing to worry about. No matter how bad things get. When we read all this, these things, this happened over a couple of hundred years. And so people had to experience all of this in their lives. Well, we're experiencing such things in our lives, and we've experienced even worse at times. First, Second World War, uh, 9-11, you think of the uh, Pearl Harbor, the Korean conflict, all of these types of things. Uh, So this has always been the case since man sinned in the Garden of Eden, and, uh, and sin is at the heart of all of it. So... While invading Egypt in 168, Antiochus and his army were stopped by a Roman army that came by ship. The Roman consul Gaius Papilius Lenus handed a letter to Antiochus from the Roman Senate. Now, can you imagine this in the movie? Then he drew a circle around Antiochus and told him to decide whether to leave Rome or not before he came out of that circle. Can you hear the music? And he's right in the middle of the circle. He's this fierce man, you know, not afraid of anybody. But if, he's, if he uh, doesn't make the right decision, they'll kill him right on the spot. You know, so then, you know, he backed down, and he was very unhappy. I can just see it. I can even think of the actors that would be the best. So he took it out on the Jews which is sort of 
awful. It, it reads in verse 30, then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, against the Jewish people. He'll return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. So these are, are Jews that go against their own religion. Now, Apollonius, the head of Antiochus's mercenaries, went to Jerusalem in the pretense of peace and on a Sabbath day massacred many people and plundered the city, but rewarded many loss and the other apostate Jews who had forsaken the Holy Covenant. And then in verse 31, it tells us his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temporal fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice, meaning they'll get rid of the Jewish religion. Now, remember, Daniel is listening to this. And this angel has said, then there will come a time when uh, the whole Jewish system will be gone. And in 167 BC, it became forbidden on the sentence of death to practice circumcision, which was a sign of the covenant necessary to be a practicing Jew, to possess the scriptures, couldn't have a Bible, to practice sacrifice, there's no forgiveness, and to celebrate the feast days. Feast days. Now, th this is something I want to talk about just for a minute. But then it goes on to say that then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. We'll talk about that in a minute. But what happened here is the religion that's holding the world together, the people of God, the Jews, has been basically made persona non grata. You have a Bible, we'll kill you. And what it does over some time, doesn't take much time, we can see it today, is it erases memories, it erases history. And so all of the things that were practiced in the Jewish religion, all the things we read in the Bible, teach us where we came from, where we're going, how we should act, who God is, and who we are. And then how society should run. And I don't know, I hope that you've all read the Constitution, but when you read the Constitution of the United States, you know right away, without the Bible, it doesn't work. It was written for people that believed in what the Bible said. It wasn't, they weren't all necessarily Christians, most of them were, but the, there was absolute truth, and there was good and evil, and there was command, all of these things, and that's what kept this country together for so long. And so what's happening to us today is exactly the same as this. And we have a, a generation of younger people today that just, I, I get so sad sometimes I can hardly believe it. They have no memory now. They have no idea what life's all about. They don't read the Bible. If you don't read the Bible, you couldn't possibly know what life's all about. Whatever you think is just whatever you think. It's just what the people around you happen to say. And everybody else, whatever your truth, my truth, the different truth. No, there's, there's truth. There's only one way to heaven. There's a God, only one God. And, and he's holy, and he has some demands on us, and he's offered us salvation. And so we don't know history anymore. You can go to young people today, and even some, shockingly, uh, will not know really anything about 9-11. Oh, the, yeah, yeah, we knew, but yeah, we heard about 9-11. Somebody said something about it in school, but they don't understand what it really meant. They don't even know uh, anything about Vietnam or Pearl Harbor or the Second World War or how the First World War started and all of that type of thing. I grew up with it in an environment where my father was in the First Second War and Second World War. My brother was killed in the Second World War. And uh, all of the things in my generation 
we all knew what truth was, even if we didn't. I mean, I was an atheist for years, but I still knew what right and wrong was because I knew what the Bible said. I read the Bible to argue against it, so when I became a Christian, I couldn't read it without crying. I thought, this is the most amazing book. And that's what's happening here. That's, what's, that's what this terrible man is doing. He's trying to erase all that so he can take over. And so he's, he's like a Putin today who just simply decides to go into another uh, country, into the Ukraine, and wipe it out for no other reason than he can. He's like Alexander the Great. He's like uh, uh, Antiochus. Uh, and he's just doing it because he can. And he doesn't care that he's killing all kinds of civilians and children and all that and truth. None of that matters. Only cares about himself. And so if, if at, I'll, I'll, I'll stop here with my going on and I'll then go on here. But at 9-11, so many young men went into the armed forces. Do you know that was so good? Because it gives us hope. Because the only kind of people that will do that are people that don't just think about themselves all the time. And they're doing it to protect something that's worth protecting. And in our country and other countries, the truth and the way to live and to protect the freedom to own a Bible. There was a time, this still is in China, you can get a lot of trouble for owning a Bible. And some other parts of the world too. Well, so then verse 31, sorry. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. Now that is when... This man offered a pig on the temple. When, when Daniel heard about this, when, if any Jew today, even if he's not a, quote, practicing Jew, could not even imagine this. They offered a pig. He offered a pig on, on the temple and killed thousands of Jews when they came against him in what is called the Maccabean Revolt. You can read about it in First and Second Maccabees in the in that kind of, uh, you can find it online. December 15, 167 B.C., an idol statue devoted to Zeus was erected in the Jewish temple. And on the 25th of Shislev, that's December in our calendar, a swine was sacrificed on the altar in the temple. And this is what, this is what he is referred to, this is what he is referring to when Jesus told us, when Jesus was on this earth, that a similar thing will happen during the Great Tribulation, which is still in the future during the 70th week of Daniel that we studied in chapter 9. I quoted the verse, Matthew 24, 15. Jesus said, when you see standing in the holy place the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. What he's saying is make sure you're reading Daniel, and then you know what's going to happen. And then verse 32 with flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant, but the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Firmly resist him. First Maccabees, remember he's called the hammer, 62 and 63. We need people like this. But many in Israel stood firm and were resolved in their hearts not to eat unclean food, and they chose to die rather than be defiled by food or to profane the holy covenant. And they did die. And then Revelation chapter 12, 11 is more for us to think about because we'll read about it in the Revelation. They triumphed over him, that is, 
God's people triumphed over the devil by the blood of the lamb, that's salvation, and by the word of their testimony, when you're saved. You know, some people think if I just pray a prayer, I'm saved. Well, you need to pray a prayer, but that's, it's God that saves you. It's Jesus' death, life, and resurrection that saves you. And the, what happens if you're really saved, then you, uh, you will have enjoyed the worship tonight. <laughs> I'm sure we all did. You could hardly wait to get to church. You read your Bible, and you live for him. And so it says they triumphed over him, these Christians, by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. They did not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. We need more people like that. Verse 33, those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they'll fall by the sword or be burned or captured or plundered. That's martyrdom. When they fall, they'll receive a little help, and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made spotless until the end, time of the end, for it will still come at the appointed time. Now, these 35 verses contain about 135 prophecies. Every one has been fulfilled, starting at verse 36. Then we jump ahead to a time still to come, and since God so accurately predicted that future which is now past, we can expect the same accuracy in our future. And so the following verses are about the 70th week that we studied in chapter 9. Now, because the preacher tonight talked too much, I've got about three more pages here, and uh, there's, it's, it's season three... Number five tonight, right? We need to get home. And uh, so I'm going to stop there on purpose. And I'm going to end next week, starting here, because there's only a, very few, only a few verses in chapter 12, and sort of put this all together. And, uh, but um, what I'm going to do is I'll just go to the end here, and we'll, we'll finish and then have another chance to worship. We, we need to ask the question... What does this mean for us today? And uh, we need to always ask that question. Every time you hear a sermon, if it's, if it's a, good, a real teaching of the Word of God, you have to ask yourself, you should never be able to come to church without making some decision. You may not be very big, but it, they all add up about your life. So what does all this mean for us today? Well, it means that we must be aware of God's plans and his ways. We must be. And we have no excuse not to be. We have so, so much. We have religious freedom in America. We can read our Bibles. There are so many translations of the Bible. Uh, you know, even people that aren't very smart can get the not very smart Bibles because they're all, they're, they'll still make you smarter. <laughs> it means we must live our Christian lives with authenticity. It means we must not be lazy or complaining or fearing and worrying about our futures. Valerie, don't say anything. <laughs> I mean, I need the money, so. <laughs> it means we are fearless rather than timid and that our ultimate goal in life is to please God and love others. And so it's not my absolute favorite verse, but it's one of my very, very favorite verses. I quote it often, but this is 
what it all means. Acts 20, 24. But my, this is the Apostle Paul speaking. But my life is worth nothing to me. This should be for all of us. Unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. And we can't know that if we don't read the Bible and we don't become part of the body of Christ. And to become part of the body of Christ means we use our gifts in the body of Christ. We let ourselves be known as we become known. We forget about ourselves and care more about others, and others who are forgetting about themselves will care than about us. But my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. And I wish I did it better uh, Daniel and I had a meeting this week together, just as friends. And um, he's, I mean this in the kindest way, he's obsessed with telling other people about Jesus. And I'm jealous of him. We all need to be that. Because if you know somebody that doesn't know Jesus, and something happens to them today, it doesn't matter what age they are, you don't know, I don't know then they're going to hell, which is terrible, and they go there forever rather than heaven, and all they need to go to heaven is to know the gospel and receive Jesus and let him change their lives. So that's what it means to us today. Let's stand, and I'll pray, and then uh, we'll worship with another song. Father, I just thank you for... Daniel is a person I'm so looking forward to meeting him. And I think of him 90 years old, he's still uh, full of passion Father, because you've strengthened him and encouraged him. And I, I just pray for all of us that we will listen carefully to what you have to say as we read our devotions and our Bibles on a daily basis and as we uh, go out in faith every day, fulfilling the plan that you have for our life. Help us to meet many who need to know Jesus and help us to encourage one another in the faith. In Jesus' name, amen.